0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Michael Gray. Michael is a critic, writer, public speaker, an expert on rock and roll history, and a world authority on the work of Bob Dylan. His latest book is Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, Volume 1, Language and Tradition, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year with a special reprinting with the second and third volumes coming out later this year, and is published by the FM Press. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, thank you. So to get things started, please share with us what your book is about. It's a critical study of
1: Bob Dylan's work. The first edition came out in 50 years ago and uh, it, uh, it was really pione- It I can say that I was a sort of pioneer of Dylan's studies, which is now a huge industry because it was the first critical full length work. That was treating him as a serious artist, um, a literary figure and and uh, uh, and something extraordinarily unique, but certainly a serious artist rather than a folk singer or a, a pop star, which he had tended to be treated as. Um, it wasn't the first book about him at all. Of course, there had been um, a couple of little things and there had been a decent biography by Anthony Scuduto, but certainly mine was the first critical study. And uh, and uh, at the time, I was a student reading English literature and history at the University of York in the north of England. And um, I was being trained to, play, to pay close attention to the text uh, of... The 19th century novel, for example. And uh, I started hearing Bob Dylan and feeling that some of this work, some of these very long songs might bear the weight of the same kind of critical scrutiny. And the more interested in his work I became, the more I started to feel the need to write about him. And the only way to write about him at length was a book. Now, um, the uh, The book was updated at the beginning of the 80s, and then finally it was updated to a huge 900 plus page third and final edition in 2000. And and that was in print through a number of reprints for well over 10 years, but it has now been out of print for over 10 years. And so uh, I'm very pleased that the FM Press is republishing this as a so-called 50th anniversary edition, but it's the text of the 2000 work, which many people have continued to want to get hold of. And as I say, it's been out of print for over a decade.
0: And that's ex- and that's really excellent. It's a fantastic re-release, and I'm really excited to talk with you about it. So let's dive into a bit of the, that language and literary tradition in your book. Yeah. You open your book by describing it as a benign kind of labyrinth, not one that looks at what Dylan eats for breakfast, but rather what he writes about in his songs. And when you originally wrote this book in the early seventies, Dylan had become more reclusive, reclusive, settling down with the family. And we can look back in hindsight now and see how this period fits within his overall career. But could you tell us about this direction you took at a time when people were unsure of what to expect from Dylan next?
1: Yeah, well, I, my uh, my timing w- was bad from a commercial point of view because, yes, when my book came out in nineteen seventy three, we'd had uh, we'd had three years of silence from Dylan, and uh, and the the, the non silence before that had been the double album Self Portrait, which many people had felt was a pretty inadequate and disappointing piece of work. From the man who had created the freewheeling Bob Dylan album, and bringing it all back home, and Highway 61 revisited, and Blonde on Blonde, even um, John Wesley Harding, which came out in theory on the 27th of December 1967, but really is a, it's a 1968 album, and then came the very friendly, warm minor. Nashville Skyline album in 1969, and then Self-Portrait, which bombed. I remember being at a festival in Bath in England where the headliners were Frank Zappa and um, Led Zeppelin, and I was just there in the audience and in the crowd. And um, and on these huge speakers, they started playing what was then tracks from this absolutely brand-new um. Dylan album Self Portrait and it was perfectly clear from the crowd reaction to this that it was no longer of any interest that Dylan was this passé figure from the 60s um even though we were barely out of the 60s ourselves but certainly by 1973 he had uh, as you said he he'd been settled he'd uh, been being domestic and and you know, in those days uh, he was already difficult as far as um, the industry was concerned because he didn't put out two albums a year uh, and that was that was the normal thing. So to have these long gaps between albums, uh, it was an extraordinary part of his deliberately doing what he wanted and not what the industry either wanted or expected and that that Characteristic of him has has never wavered really, except um, except once in the nineties when when he felt bullied by MTV executives into doing the unplugged that they wanted instead of the one that he would like to have done. But that's that's very uh, a very rare occurrence for him to care what what the industry wanted anyway it meant that uh, when my book came out um it was uh less less uh, commercially successful than uh, than if it had come out even 3 years later when by by which time he had created and released Blood on the Tracks one of his great albums and the album that that made everybody realize that uh, this was not just an old, an old has been from the 1960s. This was someone in their 30s, a serious artist, capable proving this album, sort of proved that this artist was capable of um, making interesting, serious, um, substantial work. Uh, and could go on doing so for as long as he wanted he had
0: he had broken the chains of the 1960s he certainly had and let's go and talk about that early 60s work because when you wrote this book Dylan's career was only a decade old but so much had happened during that time and so yes. at the yeah, so at the beginning when he was just a hillbilly sounding kid in the new york folk scene of the early 60s There were various misconceptions in that scene about his early work from what you describe as young, white, middle-class Americans who were provided with a handy collective psyche that was a palliative to all kinds of inadequacy, which you said did not suit Dylan. Could you tell us more about that and how that was reflected in his early work and specifically on his debut album?
1: Well, his debut album was um, a sort of defiant, um, rough
0: piece of work
1: he he kept off it some of the songs he'd already written himself only two of the tracks on the album are Dylan compositions one of them is um talking new york which summarizes how he was being received or or how he was feeling he was being received in um, in uh new york folks circles um uh it it he summarizes it in in one line that he that he says in that song, which is people saying to him, "You sound like a hillbilly. we want folk singers here." So he was claiming uh, and quite rightly that he was bringing many qualities to Greenwich Village and to um the sort of faddishness of of folk at the at that time, um which were which were which were absent from most folk aesthetics. But uh, at the same time, you know, he uh, he was furiously writing all this other material. And by the second album, um, it's a flood of his own work. And it includes many of the songs which became regarded as, you know, protest songs. Um, so that... Um, whether he liked it or not and i suspect he probably did he was becoming a voice that would soon become often labeled as the voice of a generation um but certainly you know there was um there was a, a a mix of what people wanted from folk music at that point the folk revival was largely a white middle class um phenomenon but at the same time, uh, many of the folk performers were perfectly serious people. Uh, they knew what they wanted. But but mainly what they didn't want was to write folk songs. What they really wanted was to try and get back to the most pure virginal folk songs that they could possibly cover or uncover. and um, And... Dylan came into all this with this sort of rock and roll attitude and, um,
0: and as a prolific writer of songs. So you were saying that Dylan brought in a lot of different qualities early in the folk scene. But something I found so incredibly fascinating in your book was how you described Dylan's relationship to black folk music tradition, saying that it was not inherited as a separate form, but rather as ever present influences on other hybrid forms. So my question is, how did Dylan capture that so early in his career and especially amongst this music scene that was predominantly white in a culture that reflected that?
1: Well, um, first of all, there had been the Harry Smith anthology of American folk music issued by Folkways in the early 1950s. And this had been the first time that uh, record tracks by white people and tracks by black people had ever been put together on, a, on the same compilation. Uh, and this was very old music, taken from old seventy eights, and everyone who was around in Greenwich Village at the time was familiar with this with this album, uh, this set of albums. And uh, and then in 1959, a writer and uh, field researcher called Sam Charters, Samuel Barclay Charters, uh, published a book called The Country Blues, in which he said. Um, if people know about the blues at all, they know about the so- so-called classic women singers, Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and so on, um, who were around in the very early 20s and who had arrangers and uh, jazz combos behind them and songwriters who gave them their material. And the other kind of blues that people seemed to know about by by nineteen sixty. Where was the Chicago blues that started coming out of Chicago from about 1948, Muddy Waters and, and those people. Um, not that he'd come from Chicago, but he was brought up there. But, um, I mean, taken up there. But um, Sam Charter said there's a whole other kind of blues that happens between these two. Uh, uh, and um, it's... Uh, it's a solo acoustic work um, by by individuals who were serving their own local communities, but some of them got got put onto record uh, way back when, you know. Um, Skip James and Sleepy John Estes and uh, so on and so on. And, um, and uh, what Charter's book inspired was a whole bunch of these young white enthusiasts having read the book to go down to the deep south and see if they could still find these people if some of them were alive. Because Charles was saying, you know, they may be. They're not from, they're not from Neptune. They're, uh, they're, they're among us, or they certainly were. But, of course, many of them had given up their guitars the, uh, and pawned them in the Depression and gone back to work as whatever work they could get. Um, so they were rather surprised. The ones that were found to be told that they were considered to be great musicians and and artists, and even more pleasantly surprised to find that they could play music again uh, on coffee house stages in in Greenwich Village and other East Coast cities. And Dylan was not the only one, but he was certainly avid in sitting at these people's feet and watching how their hands moved on their guitars when they were performing in these clubs, you know and so uh so he was he was aware of it more or less as soon as he reached the village and then because he was writing, he was incorporating it, he was absorbing it he he you know he was a sponge he 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 sucked up everything uh i mean.
0: What's creative about it is the way that he used it. So in your book, you explore a lot of different ideas about the mix of environmental influences and music scenes in both in England and America with regards to that, if there weren't all these different influences, there would be no purist folk music. And I find this very fascinating because you explore a lot of musical myths throughout your book, one of which was that pop music was at an all-time low in the early 1960s. And I was wondering if you can tell me more about that idea in relationship to the the purism that was happening at the time
1: uh yeah well of course um my own background was entirely rock and roll um i went to a very uh, repressive school and so when i heard rock and roll which was when i was about 11 10 or 11 um it was fantastically exciting and liberating uh and um and so i had um I was entranced by all the early stars of uh, rock and roll uh, and uh, nothing diverted me towards folk music uh, in any way. I had never been in a folk club and I more or less still haven't ever been in a folk club, as a matter of fact. But um, so so uh, one of the things that happened in the, in, in the sort of... Con- my contemporary history of the time is that uh, rock and roll got squeezed off the airwaves, particularly in America was never, there was never much of it on British airwaves anyway, because everything was controlled by the BBC, which didn't like it. Um, but in America, you know, um, at, at one point there were 6,000 independent stations that could play what they liked and play, play what they liked. They did. And, uh, uh and then as early as nineteen fifty-seven, the first kind of creation of a playlist that DJs had to stick to was launched. I mean, not everywhere, but it began in as early as 57, which after all was a big rock and roll year. And um and so mostly by 1960, 61 anyway, um Pop on pop on the radio was pop. It wasn't rock and rolling. Um it was much um simpler. Well, that's not really true. Rock and roll was pretty really simple, but um it was um it was just it was just softer and nicey nicey and uh, and you know lots of pretty boys with not much talent became stars because they were teen idols and and so there was a general feeling in the air that uh that pop music was had become pretty lame uh uh pretty terrible and um and of course in um in America bob dylan had been feeling that that it wasn't adequate and uh and then he found Woody Guthrie and uh and, and that gave him something um but what was extraordinary when Dylan went electric, of course, was that was that um, his rock and roll was not one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock rock. It was um, complex poetry, and um, and uh, what Christopher Ricks calls the force of poetry
0: was mixed with the power of rock and roll. In your book, you connect Dylan to a lot of specific things that he drew as inspiration from distinctive artists before 1960s pop, such as Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly. And you say that despite those influences, he recreated the birth in rock and roll, which is this this poetry, um, this element, his more surrealistic work. And you say... Of that work, it was a catalyst the mass adoption of the underground that has since become representative of the 60s culture. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, he, uh, in a way, he was the last beat poet. Uh, I mean, one of his big influences was the work of Ginsberg and Corso and Kerouac. And and so um, part of that, uh, you know, it, that sort of erupts in 19 in the 1950s when Ginsburg publishes Howell and and it gets to be big um and so that sort of underground left wing dropout kind of attitude is absorbed as part of what Dylan is doing um but at the same time you know he was interested in other kinds of literature but um but 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 when Dylan um when Dylan did the mid 60s electric albums he was he was thrusting this counterculture into the mainstream and um you know he was interviewed by uh, sorry um in 1969 he was interviewed by Rolling Stone and they they were trying to Get him to admit that um that he had changed the world. And they said, Well, you know, you were you influenced a lot of people. Um and uh he said, like who? <laughs> and uh and so they, of course they then struggled to name specific people. And um and then and then eventually they they nearly give up, but then they fight their final shout at this, trying to get to this is um. Uh well, uh how things are on the radio. Um don't you think you've um been a huge influence
0: on that? And he says, I hope not. Wow, that's such a very Dylan thing to say. That I I find that so so incredibly funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, um so as and, the-
1: and, you know, um in, in other ways too, you know, when he comes to Britain in 1965. Uh, and we get the film don't look back that's when he's a pop star he's having top 10 hits and uh, he comes you know and he wears chelsea boots and uh, he doesn't look like a folk singer anymore and he's not um he's not singing folk material anymore and uh, there's a huge crowd of photographers and journalists to meet him at london airport because that's how that's how now he is but uh but he's the only person they'd ever encountered who didn't answer stupid questions sensibly. You know, I've said before that uh, Elvis Presley, for all his rebelliousness. And, um, and if you see the film Elvis, uh, um, it's very, it's very good at, at emphasizing how revolutionary Elvis and dangerous Elvis sounded to people in the South when he first erupted there. Um, but for all that, you know, faced with press questions, Elvis Presley would say yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and uh, and be completely polite. Whereas, uh, whereas Dylan, you know, treated stupid questions like stupid questions. Uh, uh, it was it was a defiance and a self confidence that um, that comes from the artist and is a world away. From pop idols uh, uh and the kind of stuff that was on the radio, but then it all gets into the press, you know these people report this stuff and uh and so um that people people read these weird and wacky answers to questions and
0: think hey this is this is interesting, something's happening here. So one thing I really found interesting about your book is this aspect, how you explore Dylan's relationship to black cultural creation regarding his relationship with the blues. And you write in your book that the old blues have been seminal all through his career. And he has made plain in a series of clear signals though we have not always uh, paid attention. Could you tell us more about that? Yes. Um, You know, uh, when you're
1: young, uh, very young, and you like popular music of some sort. Um, You sort of, if you fix on someone as your favourite, you sort of want them to be the lone genius. You don't want them, you don't want to be told that um, that they owe a great deal to middle-aged and elderly people who, uh, you know, wear terrible clothes and so on. Um, You want to think that your idol is uniquely groovy uh, and, and The Lone Genius. Um, and what I'm saying about that, his handling of black music, is that he never claimed to be The Lone Genius. Um, and, and if we look at when he starts prominently using that black material, i.e. when he first goes electric, just look at the titles of those albums. The first one is called Bringing It All Back Home, i.e. to something that's gone before. And the other one, the next one, is called Highway 61 Revisited. Revisited. And Highway 61 itself is one of the great routes of escape from the South uh, in the Jim Crow era. And, uh, and there were many songs Recorded called Highway 61, Highway 61 Blues, and Highway 61 Number Two, uh, by a whole bunch of these people, and uh, mostly quite obscure people, and in and um, and most of them were people who probably hadn't actually travelled that road very far because geographically they're pretty inaccurate. But uh, but Dylan was placing himself in a in a very clear context, even if. You know, nobody really took much note. It was just a, it was just a groovy title, maybe at the time. Highway sixty one revisited. I mean, there's something mysterious about it. Nobody, you know, Frank Sinatra didn't call albums things like that. You know, um, and um, and so, yeah, Dylan Dylan was uh, bringing this stuff along. Uh, and being very creative with it. I mean, because, you know, usually when you hear a song of his that is in a blues format, he writes his own blues lines, not entirely, but mostly speaking. And it's often when he writes a song that doesn't sound like a blues at all that he smuggles in lines from pre-war blues and so on. But also, uh, you know, on the back of one of those albums, Uh, where he writes these surreal sleeve notes, it begins by, one of them begins by saying, I'm standing here watching the parade, feeling combination of sleepy John Estes, and then he names a couple more people. But the very first name is one of these old pre-war blues guys, and in fact, one of the ones
0: who had been rediscovered, in quotes. Not only did Dylan stay rooted in the blues during the height of his popularity in the mid-60s, but he continued to stay rooted in it. And one song that comes to mind that speaks to this is Blind Willie McTell, which is one of his many masterpieces. And I was wondering if you can tell us how Dylan has managed to stay so firmly rooted in blues music throughout his career. I think it's just the love of the music itself. Uh, uh, You know, no one listens
1: to music more avidly than than Bob Dylan. and um and I don't think that's something that he's stopped doing as he's got older. I think that um blind William McTell it's a beautiful thing and, and it uh, and it focuses a great deal. But um of course, because it's blind William McTell is convenient from a rhyming point of view. He couldn't have written no one can sing the blues like Robert Johnson because there would be nothing to there would be nothing to rhyme with Johnson. Um but yeah, I think I think he just listens to everything. And um uh I know that uh, Don was uh said that uh, you couldn't you couldn't quote anything from an old son record. Uh, he always knew it. He always knew what it was and uh, and i think that i think that's true across a huge range of music i think he's always listened to a great deal of of um country music too you know uh certainly he said his first idol was hank williams when most people were saying my first idol was elvis presley and um uh yeah bluegrass uh, he's
0: He's always liked old music. Towards the end of your book, after you've explored all the musical and literary traditions of Dylan's work, I found something really compelling, you say, in which you describe him as both a radical and a conservative cultural figure. How so?
1: Yeah. Um, like a I think I say. Um, uh, well, he's radical because he changed everything, you know, uh, he really did. He... Uh, it changed the face of popular music and it changed the face of popular culture. You know, uh, every, everyone was different by 1975 as a result of Bob Dylan's work having permeated the culture. Um, but at the same time, you know, precisely because he's so interested in old stuff and um, uh, uh, old music and history, He's obviously always been very interested in the American Civil War, for example, um, which you can't be interested in without also being interested in um, race relations and, and so on and so on. But because he's always had those interests in historic music and historic events, um you know one of his instincts is to conserve those things to preserve that stuff um, um and he does it he does it creatively but he but he does it um uh, and i think in that way he he man, he manages to both be really radical i mean in a in a game changing way and at the same time um a sort of archivist of the past, an archivist of the musical past. Um, no one, no one listens to Bob
0: Dylan without being sent to other music. I hope so. This book is a new printing, and it's really, really nice to hold, and it's really great. And congratulations for that. That's quite an accomplishment.
1: Thank you. I haven't actually, I haven't actually managed to hold it
0: yet. Oh, you—you you mine, you mine, mine hasn't arrived
1: because I live
0: in France. Well, it's, it's, it's fantastic and it's, it's great. And I'm very excited that there's going to be a whole new readership for it. And so my question for you on this new edition is that since writing it, or even since the last printing, have there been any ideas or notions that you've had about Dylan that have changed or have surprised you since then?
1: Uh, yes, I, um, I wish that I had uh, been able to write about Love and Theft, but it came out after my book came out and i wish i could write have written about that there because um it surprised me that album for me it's his only great album of the 21st century it's i rate it more highly than rough and rowdy ways and certainly higher than something like tempest but uh but um, I would like to, I, you know, I was surprised by, by that, by how good-humoured it was, um, by how warm and, and friendly it was, particularly, you know, after, uh, after Time Out of Mind with Not Dark Yet, a m- magnificent song, but a, a, a song in which includes saying, my sense of humanity has gone down the drain. Brave thing to write, but a sad thing to feel. But love and thirty's recovered that sense mm-hmm. of humanity, um, and I and I just love it. Um, so, so I suppose I wasn't expecting something so sort of jolly after the after the doom and gloom of time out of mind. Uh, Dylan just seemed to be shaping up to become a more and more curmudgeonly old bloke and um and then suddenly everything changes all over again um and um of course i'm also surprised that uh he's now 82 and still on tour in fact i'm going to see him myself in spain in a few days time
0: it's going to be a great show and i'm going to be at the uh, carcassonne show as, um next month at not next month a couple of weeks um he's he's been on a real trip lately and I loved your thoughts on love and theft because I agree. I think it's a fantastic album. Um, But one thing, you know, his performances are are a lot more livelier in the last couple of years and certainly his material has been elevated a bit. And I kind of think it's all connected to the Sinatra albums. And I wanted to ask your thoughts about the Sinatra records and how they fit in with a lot of the themes you explore in terms of, traditions in your book
1: yeah well um i can see that um he's obviously interested in in that material because it's what he heard on the radio when he was very young um i find it of absolutely no interest at all i uh, i hate the great so-called great american songbook um because it seems to me it's just sort of slick songwriters sitting in little offices in new york churning out stuff you know someone says hey how about um the night we called it a day how about that for a title oh yeah that's great let's write a song about that you know uh he's not frank sinatra you know he said at the time the first of those albums came out he said uh, bob said um you know we're not uh we're not covering this material we're uncovering it but you know that was just I mean, it had never been un it it there was no need to uncover it. It had never disappeared. It had never been buried underneath anything, despite you know, my generation's feeling that Bob Dylan were, had been born to abolish that kind of music. Uh, you know, so it um it was no pleasure to me to find him self-indulgently re-recording those those songs. Um I thought, uh, I thought they were done pretty indifferently, myself. So um, quite how having done that material is supposed to have um, been such an influence on what he's done since, I don't understand. Um, you know, he's always been through phases where he's bothered to sing more clearly than other phases. He's always been through periods where he's changed the set list a lot and periods where he hasn't. <coughs> you know, the uh, the 1974 tour with the band, the so-called comeback tour of, of 1974, um, you know, that was a pretty fixed set list, night after night after night. Um, just like the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour set list is
0: now. Another big thing that's happened since the last printing of your book is that Dylan is a Nobel Prize laureate now, and I know you were a big proponent of that. And I want to know what went I through your actually. mind. Actually, I thought I read that you were.
1: No, I um, I gave a talk at the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, okay, which was about the uh, which, uh, which was before he got it. Okay. Not long before he got it, and um, everyone else were, who spoke about it said how it was going to be great, and I I wrote a piece about how he shouldn't get it, <clears throat> um, and I think I was the only person
0: at that conference who was arguing that he shouldn't get it. My apologies. That was poor research on my part. Um. So no, we'll... not at all. Um, and so. Um, that, that that talk that I gave
1: there has been turned into an essay which is now in my most recent book until the new Song and Dance Man reprint. That is Outtakes on Bob Dylan, Selected Writings, 1967 to 2021, published in the UK in hardback by Root. Ah. And that, um, that book also has my 60,000-word essay about rough and rowdy ways. Um, But um, I didn't feel he should get it because I felt he was more than a literary figure. Not because he didn't deserve it, but because I felt that he was more than... He couldn't really squeeze him down into just saying he's a literary figure. Mm -hmm. And also because I felt, you know... He didn't need the vast amount of money that comes with the prize and there were a lot of very worthy writers <coughs> <coughs> and there were a lot of very worthy writers who could have, who could have changed their situations with that money. Um, having said that, of course, when news came through that he had won it, I was thrilled <laughs> because you know I'm a Bob Dylan aficionado and um and I thought that it was brave of them to give it to him and yeah so you know in the end I'm I'm more than happy about it and um I I heard a critic just the other week saying that um that you know It was a very long road to the Nobel Prize, but that my book in the first place had been part of what nudged it that way. And of
0: course, I was flattered by that. I liked that. So my last question, Dylan just released Shadow Kingdom last week, which is the soundtrack companion to the stage concert film that streamed uh, in 2020 during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. I didn't watch the stream then. I I just heard the album for the first time last week, and I I think it's phenomenal, and for those who are not familiar with it, um, on the album he reimagines his earlier songs. And I was wondering, how do you fit Shadow Kingdom in with that literary and musical tradition uh, thesis you explore in your book? Well, I think it's really interesting that he that he wants to revisit them, but then he's always
1: done that. You know, when I first saw him live in 1966 it was perfectly clear that he was never going to replicate a record when he performed in concert. He was always going to be re-exploring the possibilities of that song. Uh, And, you know, he's been doing that famously ever since at least 1965. Um, And so in a way, Shadow Kingdom is like a sort of the first time that's been put on an album, but it's not a new idea for Dylan to be doing that. I, when I saw it, when it was first available, if you paid to to watch it, uh, uh, the video stuff, I uh, I didn't much care for it because I thought, here's Bob hiding in the shadows again, um, not being straightforward, you know. He dare not stand there with a the guitar and play, he has to have all this noir, modish stuff going on and uh, and be miming and have pre-recorded it and all that, you know. And the musicians who are pretending to play aren't really the musicians. I found all that a bit tiresome. But um, as an audio album now, I think it's pretty strong. I, I mean, I don't think everything works. I don't think... Um, Tombstone Blues works really well, slowed down that much. I think it's one of his more minor mid-60s compositions. But uh, and I'm I'm particularly glad that he has included What Was It You Wanted, which is not really an early song of Bob Dylan's at all. It was on Oh Mercy in the late 1980s. But um, but I love how he's changed that without. I mean he does change the words actually he changes the words a bit um and in the course of them he loses a line that I've always particularly liked on that song I've always liked that song um he loses the line what's going on in your show which I think is a really nice way of asking someone what's going on in their life you know what's going on in your show um and he doesn't do that on the on the um Shadow Kingdom album version but what he does is he transforms it on oh mercy that song is uh it's almost like something from the 60s it it it's a song about you know addressing someone it's a dramatic monologue as as you know like uh like um Something is happening, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? It's it it it. The other person never gets a word in edgeways. It's addressed. You only get Dylan's voice, and uh, and Dylan's voice is fairly dismissive and contemptuous, and and um, at, while sort of slyly pretending to be polite and, and uh, you know, agreeable. But, um, but basically, it's quite a sharp, put-downy sort of a song on no Mercy. On Shadow Kingdom, it's, it's more like the portrait of an old, confused person who genuinely is asking, are you the same person who was here before? And so on and so on. In the original version, that was just a kind of insult. You know, you're so boring or or anonymous that I can't tell whether it's you who was here a minute ago pestering me or not. Whereas now it's it's a much more humane, vulnerable song, in in which, you know, it 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 those questions are not put-downs now or or there's no spite in it. They are they are real pleas for guidance and help it's um it's it's a beautiful thing he's done with that
0: I, i'm very fascinated by that response and so i just had a quick follow-up question because knowing that we're both going to see dylan do different shows in the next in the coming days and weeks i'm, I'm curious about your thoughts of when he does those things but in a live setting when he changes the words and, and a lot of the traditional elements of his songs the way he or rearranges things. Do you have a difference in how you view that in a live setting and versus on an album? Uh, considering that Shadow Kingdom is, a, you know, one in which we get a glimpse of how he does that.
1: Well, it's all more—it's all more flying uh, by the seat of your pants in concert. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think um, I think it's unusual this tour in that it's a very largely very fixed set list but that he does keep changing the arrangement of how he does the songs so in other words he's still quite restless about it but for some reason he's decided as a principle that this is the rough and rowdy ways tour and he will damn well play everything on the album except murder most foul Um, but he still can't resist Changing it around all the time, um, uh, whereas before he didn't he didn't set himself quite such a rigid format to rebel against. He um, he he was more he was more able to please himself in every way. Um, I mean, it, it did used to be a, a great thrill to go to a run of concerts in in one city by Bob, knowing that the set list would be at least 60% different from one night to another. Um, I'm only going to one concert this time. Um, And so are you, yeah? Just the one, yeah. Yeah. But if we were going to five or six, I don't know how we would
0: feel about how much variety there was there. I think at this point, it's just mentally preparing that, This could be the last time we ever see him. He's been trading on that one for decades. Uh, (laughs) Really?
1: I mean, yes, of course, you're right. It might be the last time. But when I was at the Bob Dylan Center last month uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, one of the things I was able to do while I was hanging around in the very, very tiny so-called arts district of Tulsa was I was able to go to a club uh, and hear the 91-year-old rambling Jack Elliott perform for oh, wow. the first time. Um, well, I'm sure people went to that because it was definitely going to be the last time they could see him, and um, and so it should have been. He was pretty poor. He only did about seven songs, and they were all songs he spent his entire career singing and yet he still had the words to all of them in front of him uh, so it was it was almost upsetting really to see this because um you know <clears throat> there was no um there was no solidity to it at all, there was no command by the artist it was it was a sad. It was a sad thing to see. Um and um I would I would love to see Bob Dylan at ninety-one, but not if he's going to be like that. But I think, you know, he's he's decades ago he said he was determined to carry on. And what's the point of stopping? And so
0: far he's been right.
1: There has been no point in stopping.
0: I completely agree with that. And Michael, I, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today and congratulations on the golden anniversary of your classic book, which I'm so glad <laughs> has been made available again. Uh, quite an anniversary, quite a book. And I really look forward to volumes two and three arriving later this year. Again, it was an absolute honor and congratulations again. Thank you so much. Thank you. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Michael Gray. His latest book is the 50th anniversary edition of Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, Volume 1, Language and Tradition, and is published by the FM Press.